When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. With an overstuffed backpack and no itinerary, I left Madison, Wisconsin before dawn on December 15, 1999, ready to start a new life in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico. I was a 24-year-old train wreck with a polished paint job, hoping my love affair, gone bad, with sex, drugs, and alcohol, wouldn't find me. This is G.P. Gottlieb, host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I'm talking to Sarah Alvarado about her memoir, Dreaming in Spanish, an Unexpected Love Story in Puerto Vallarta. Sarah was 24 years old when she realized that her life had spiraled into a series of bad relationships, partying, drug abuse, and alcoholism. She was waking up in strangers' beds with raging headaches, and she'd been drugged and raped. Her plan was to find a job near a beautiful Mexican beach so that she could practice meditation abstinence, and celibacy. She also wanted to read a lot. Although her strategy went against established precedents for overcoming addiction, Sarah turned out to be a strong-willed young woman, but it didn't always go as planned. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for joining me today. Hello. Thanks for having me. It's been nearly 24 years since you picked up and moved to Mexico to get your life on track. So why now? Why did your book come out next? Why did you write it? Oh, yes. Um, well, I, I've i been wanting to write the story for many, many years. And I also think that time gives us perspective and healing. And my kids are older. And so it's it, the time is now. There's also some personal aspects to, you know, when you look at life and it starts to show us those moments when it's short. Um and I had a couple of incidents over the past couple of years where I was like, you know what, this is one of the things that I really want to write. And I didn't want the story to die with me. And I'm not, I'm not dying. That sounds dramatic, but it definitely was a motivator. Mm, I get you. One of my, one of the things I loved most about your memoir is your relationship, the way you spoke about your mother, her wonderful advice, your love for her. You write, my mom 
is one of those magical humans, an earth angel. Wow. But it didn't stop you. It didn't stop you from rocking the Madison nightlife with a fake ID at age 15. Can you say (laughs) more about that? Uh, Yes, she she is an amazing woman. And that was one of the things. She has um, Alzheimer's. And so knowing knowing that and and wanting to make sure that my stories are told too, knowing how easy it is to lose stories. Um, you know, she's definitely an inspiration. Um, you know, I think you can have an amazing mother and still want to experiment with all of life's um, dark sides too. So, you know, you don't, I don't feel like she would have thought that I was doing anything horrible. I was on my own journey. And sometimes we have to face shadowy sides of things. Um, but she was always there. Like I just, and I think that's one of the things that helped me get out of the darkness um, was knowing that she was always there, that steady, that steady person. Mm. You refer to several family members and of course to your husband. How did everyone referenced in the book react when you showed them your manuscript for dreaming in Spanish? Mm-hmm. Well, there's been lots of different pieces to it. So I guess um, the fun story with Carlos is that my husband is he, you know, he's <laughs> been in the other room while I've been writing for many, many years and has listened to me want to write and finish this book. Um, but there obviously came a point where I was very close to the end. He hadn't read any part of it. And I was like, you know, I can't really go into this next draft with beta readers unless you've read it. And he's very, very busy. And so instead of giving him the assignment of reading it, we um, decided that I would read it to him. So we took a couple weeks and every night I would read him, you know, maybe for about an hour. And so I basically read the whole book out loud to him, wondering what he was going to want me to take out or not be okay with. And it was an amazing experience. It was just really fun and a a joy really. And he didn't have a lot to remove. So that was, (laughs) that was fun too. Great guy. So you write a lot about seeking spirituality and seeking a deeper understanding with, with God or the goddess. Did you ultimately find what you saw and weren't able to share it with your children? That's a beautiful question. Um, I definitely have a strong spiritual practice and connection, and I feel I feel wonderful having that. So I would say, yes, I did find that. I, I also think it's something that's always in us. So, right, we can lose it and come back to it. And I think that's also part of knowing what's available, like knowing, meeting people who have something that you're like, I kind of want that. Um, And not that it's unattainable. So yes, I definitely have a strong spiritual life. And I do believe I've given that to my children. Mostly what we gave our children is an openness to choose for themselves to believe in what feels right to them um, and to not buy into, you know, what we believe just because we are their parents. And that was really important to us. Um, In fact, our youngest son ended up getting baptized at his grandmother's church in Mexico um, when he was 15 years old. Mm. And as a Jewish woman, you know, I, I was really surprised at how much I supported him and was just happy for him. 
Wow. Yeah, we tried to indoctrinate our kids and that didn't go well. So maybe <laughs> your dad was smarter. Um, so you learned that your father was an alcoholic, but you write that at age 15, when life seemed better with vodka, I didn't care about any of that. I just wanted to escape. So Sarah, my question is, what did you want to escape and how did you prevent your own kids from doing the same thing? Um, how, what did I want to escape from? Mm -hmm. Um, there was a lot of, there was a lot of dysfunction in our family. I had, um, I had some conflict with my dad and because I didn't remember like some of what's in the book, um, I share some of my memories that I didn't have access to. So I, I, I had some childhood trauma, um, that I didn't know how to contend with. Right. Like I didn't know how to make sense of it. So it just, I was angry. I was just incredibly angry. Uh, and then I think being a teenager and struggling with wanting to fit in and not feeling like I could fit in, there were, there were different opportunities and, and I'm a Pisces and there's a lot of Pisces who use escapism and drugs and alcohol are a, a very easy way for that to happen. So I, I would say that's what I was longing for in terms of feeling different and wanting to escape. And then in terms of raising my children, I also, my mother was like this for me. She really didn't try and make me do or be anything. She was, she felt like she was on the journey with me and witnessing me on my own journey and there to support it. And that's what I wanted to do for my children. So instead of saying you can, or you can't do this, it was much more of a, you know, we're here and let's explore the decisions you're making. And do you feel good about the decisions you're making? Um, and to, and to try and take that aspect of parenting, parenting is hard. <laughs> um, so I, I would say, knowing what's out there, even though things change as the generations change, I had an understanding of the trouble they could get into. But also these days, there's a lot of different kinds of trouble that kids can get into with the internet. Um, so mostly what I was really hopeful for was how do I create a relationship with my kids where they are comfortable telling me things that maybe they are feeling bad about? Um, mm -hmm. Because there, I, I was very open with my mother growing up. Like I was, I I was able to tell her a lot of things that I think most of my friends wouldn't have been comfortable telling their mothers. Um, I wasn't as comfortable talking to my dad about some of those things. And so just having those as my, as my teachers, like, okay, how do I want to be different for my kids? Yeah. So what drew you to Mexico? Why not Puerto Rico or Costa Rica? If the, uh, the dream was to speak to, if the dream was Spanish. Yeah, I had studied in a study abroad program in Sevilla, Spain, and then I had also traveled in Costa Rica and Nicaragua um, in my college years. And so I, you know, I studied about Mexico. I got my undergrad degree in Spanish from the University of Minnesota. So I knew a lot about Mexico, but I had never been there. And um, it was an opportunity for me to still be in the same time zone, the central standard time zone as my, as my mom and be not super far away, but definitely in a place where I could explore a new culture in the language. Mm -hmm. um, so there you are in Mexico and that's a really fun story, which I won't divulge, um, but how you, how you found your bearings and 
place to live and a job and all of that stuff. And then you meet Carlos. And the next thing you know, you're pregnant. Can you talk about that moment in your life? <laughs> yeah. One of the reasons I really wanted to tell this story is because I love being Alex's mother more than anything. And I am so grateful to be Carlos's wife. And at the time, I was not ready to get married. I did was so far from being ready to be a mom. And so to share the stories of what it was really like and how terrified I was and how um how much I was really almost praying to not get a positive result, right? Which I don't think a lot of women talk about because then that's that's a little taboo. Like yeah, but you should be grateful, you know, all these, these concepts. And there are definitely times when we don't feel ready and we are scared and that's okay too. It doesn't make me a bad mom. It doesn't mean that I, I wasn't going to cherish my baby, but at the same time, the reality was I didn't, I didn't want to have a baby. I didn't want to get married. Um, I wasn't ready at all. I was just trying to stay sober at that point. I had only been sober three months when I found out I was pregnant. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was, um, it was a really scary time. I was living in a foreign country. I didn't have health insurance. I had just met Carlos maybe five months earlier. You know, it, it wasn't, it wasn't your typical, yep, this is the right next step. Mm -hmm. But thank God you were clean for those three months. So right. Baby, right. In terms of the baby's development, I'm interested in your writing. You wrote beautifully about how you felt about raising a mixed race bilingual baby in Mexico. And I love that your go-to thought about it was to find books. So can you say more? Yes, that's so right. When I was in Mexico and I found out I was pregnant, they didn't have bookstores um, in Puerto Vallarta. And I just wanted, I wanted to read all of the books about all of the things. So the minute we, I got back to Madison, I was about, I was probably... 12 or maybe 10 weeks pregnant. And I went to the borders on University Ave and straight away went to the baby section. I went to the cultural section, parenting, biracial, multiracial kids, um, how to raise bilingual kids. And I, I just, I wanted all of the books. I couldn't, I was actually frustrated. I was like, I don't have time to read all of the books to know everything I need to know before this baby is born. Um, but yeah, books change everything. And actually one of the books that I got after Alex was born, I didn't read it until maybe he was like four months old was Anne Lamont's Operating Instructions. I loved that book. I mean, that really was a game changer for me. That, mm -hmm. that probably saved my life. And that sounds dramatic, but um, that's how I felt about it. And that's one of the reasons that when I was writing this book, you know, there's one thing to write it and there's another thing to publish it. And, um, oh, uh, it was Anne's book that helped me so much. I was like, I, I am going to publish this book and make it public, even though it's kind of scary because it's so personal. Um, but it just meant so much to me to read her words when I was struggling. And so I wanted to be able to share my experiences also just so that we're not defined by our traumas in life. Like, I, mm -hmm. I think that's really important, especially in the social media age where, there's so many filters and, and stories that aren't, that aren't real. And I want, I just believe it's important to, to be real about, about what's really happening behind the curtains. Mm -hmm. You're right that you used your journals to remember details about those years, but it seemed like journaling was much more than just chronically 
events for you. Can you say more? It's interesting because, you know, you don't know what other people's journals are like. And when I was reading my journals, there were times where it was like, some of it was poems and, um, and more creative writing. So it was, it was so wonderful to be able to go back and read all of these journals. Also, I quit journaling in 2002 when we moved here and I didn't start again until 2013, which makes me so sad because it was such a huge part of my life. And, um, and then it was a wealth of reason. I mean, it was an incredible resource when I was writing the book, like incredible. I just had so many details. Um, and then, yeah, and it's a, it's a wonderful process. I think, are you a journaler? Do you like to journal? I'm not, and I wish I had been because I, at the time you always think you're going to remember everything. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, it doesn't happen. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. No. So giving birth to your firstborn in Mexico was not how you'd imagined it. Um, As someone who also had a terrible experience involving a doctor who siphoned off Demerol for himself. And this was in Colorado, but it was in the 80s. Um, Can you talk about the sense you talk about? You talked about it a little bit, the sense of entitlement that made you so upset about not getting better treatment. Mm, Yeah, I was raised by a Jewish mother and my my dad was raised Catholic. So they broke a lot of traditions when they married each other, which meant that when they were raising me, um, it was very much we can, you can love anyone. Like there is no religion doesn't matter. Skin color doesn't matter very much hippie love, which I'm so appreciative of. And it was also during the eighties when a lot of parents were raising their kids to be colorblind. Like we don't even see color because everyone is the same. So I didn't grow up really having an understanding of white privilege, racial profiling, and my own whiteness as, um, as a cultural norm. So when I was in Mexico, having these experiences of being treated differently and much better because of my skin color, for the most part, it was disturbing. And I didn't have that concept of how to even wrap my head around what, what I was experiencing. So the, so I couldn't name the entitlement, but I felt it very clearly. And that was one of the tricky things when I was writing some of these stories was, you know, I, I don't want to pull people out of the book to have a <laughs> little debrief on what was actually happening for me. Um, but I wanted to be true to who I was at that time in my life. And I, and I did feel this entitlement and, you know, like I should receive this. And so I'm, I'm talking specifically just about in general, I was treated better, but obviously during that birth, there were things that went wrong and, I did have an expectation of what healthcare systems should be like and what my rights should be like. And I was very vocal about that. Whereas um, I I wasn't seeing the whole picture of 
how the healthcare system in Mexico is different. And so reviewing that later in life, after I had done a lot of my own racial justice work, it it was, there were some moments when I looked back and I was, you know, it's embarrassing to think of the Mm -hmm. things that I thought and the things that I said and, and how I acted. Um, but I also think it's important for us to be able to share those stories as well. Otherwise, how do you, how do you change it? Mm-hmm. You talk about your feelings along the same lines. You're feeling uh, about feeling your white privilege, but I wonder how do you distinguish that from American privilege or the privilege of growing up wealthy? The privilege of growing up what? With wealth. With wealth. Oh yeah. Financial. Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, the colorism easily comes into play when Alex is born and he is light-skinned and people comment all of the time about how beautiful he is because of the color of his skin. Mm -hmm. Um, So that, you know, that's made very clear by anyone that would stop us in the street as we were, you know, doing, just going about our life. The financial privilege and understanding how the, how that was playing a part in our lives. I mean, that was, I, I grew up with that just based on my parents and what my, my mom's side of the family had more wealth than my dad. So, you know, I was aware of that, that didn't, that didn't seem as hard for me to wrap my head around. And even when we were there, some of the friends that I started to spend time with were in a different financial position than we were. So that was, uh, that was much more, I was much more aware of that when I was living there versus the whiteness to some extent. And not just that I was white, like I was aware that I was white, but how did I, how did I act differently? What, why did I feel like I belong, like I should belong in a place that I, you know, that's not my country and that all that kind of entitlement. Um, I, I didn't have that understanding when I was 24. Um, I don't know if that answers the question. Yeah. Yeah. I just wondered, um, because you bring up all of those things, Mm -hmm. um, which is really an interesting part of the reading because it's not just about your personal life. Talk a lot about society. Um, well, I think it's easy to use wealth as a differentiator and not race and ethnicity. And that's where, the colorblind piece comes into play and actually is more harmful than helpful because even in Mexico, you know, Mexicans who are lighter skinned are treated better. If you have lighter eyes, you are treated better. Mm -hmm. And, and so that, that kind of, um, they call it colorism versus racism. Um, but you know, we have it very loud and clear in the United States and have for so, so, so many years. Um, but it's something that we can pretend doesn't exist as much if we are white living in more white centric spaces and communities. And that's why I think it's important to talk about it a little bit differently than just the financial aspects of it. But language barriers are huge too. And how people are treated based on, you know, their accents and and what languages they speak or don't speak. Mm-hmm. So You've done so much since that, since you were 24, whole lifetime, kids are grown, almost. Um, And I'm wondering what's next for you? What what are you writing next? What are you working on? I would love to dive deeper into the work that I did when I was in my late 30s, 
as I unpeeled the onion or peeled back the onion layers around my racial justice journey and seeing how to how to share those stories a little bit more honestly. Um, that's one of the things that I really like to do is, as you know, tell it like it is and um, trust that I know that I'm a good person, even if some of the things I have experienced, like that I have said or done might not be PC, but it's real life. Right. And so how else, like I said before, how else do you change it if we don't actually talk about it and acknowledge it and share some of that? So I would like to write about that a little bit more. I would like to write about, um, the racial inequities within real estate. And that's tricky to write about because it gets into the weeds, but yet we're all impacted by it so, so deeply. And then I also really want to write more stories about my mom. Um, she's had a really horrible and incredible at the same time, Alzheimer's journey and what she's taught me and what she's taught so many people in terms of love and being alive, even when, you know, like, who are you, if you're not your brain, there's just so much to learn from the spiritual journey that she has been on with this, um, horrible disease. So I would like to tell more of those stories as well. Oh, you've got your plate full for the next 50 years. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining me today, Sarah. It's been a pleasure talking to you about your book. Thank you so much. It's been really wonderful. And I really appreciate the opportunity. And thank you for joining. Again, this is GP Gottlieb, author of the Whipped and Sipped Mystery Series and host for New Books and Literature, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, I've been talking to Sarah Alvarado, author of the memoir, Dreaming in Spanish, an unexpected love story in Puerto Vallarta. Hope you all have a juicy novel to curl up with today and always. Happy reading.